Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to episode 174 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And what a joy it is to have Paul Weller band member Ben Gordelia on the podcast. Ben chats about his discovery of music, love of the Beatles and Laurel and Hardy, and being brought up in a music rehearsal studio, working as a drummer and producer since his early teens, even going on his first European tour at the age of just 16. Since 2012, Ben has been playing drums, percussion and performing samples with Paul Weller from the Sonic Kicks gigs at the Roundhouse to concerts across the UK, Europe, Japan, USA and Australia. That stunning Other Aspects gig at the Royal Festival Hall through to the latest tours, festivals and TV performances. Ben has played a key role on many of Paul's albums as well, starting with The Attic on Sonic Kicks, with more input on Saturn's Pattern, A Kind Revolution, on Sunset and Fat Pop. We've had plenty of singles and B-sides in that time as well, including the cover version of Birthday for Paul McCartney's 70th with Brand New Toy and Flame Out, just a couple of other great examples. Together with Andy Crofts and others, Ben is also part of the band The Moons, releasing four studio albums, including 2020's fabulous Pocket Melodies, recorded at Studio 2 Abbey Road. And in any of the spare time that Ben does have, he's in his home studio recording drums for various artists and mixing bands from all over the globe. We're going to chat a bit about his input on albums from the likes of P.P. Arnold, Steve Ellis and Declan O'Rourke. Check out the sleeve notes on Paul Weller's latest box set, Will of the People, and you'll find him saying, Ben is effing brilliant and so easy to work and record with. Always on it. A young fella held in such high regard in the Weller camp. Let's get into it. Ben Gordelia, thanks for joining me. That's the work, mate. Thanks for having us. Looking forward to chatting and hearing your story because your story starts at like a crazy young age. You said that you were brought up in your parents' music rehearsal studio. We lived in London, moved to Northampton, and my dad saw a advert in Loot magazine, I think it was. Do you remember Loot? God, bloody hell, yeah. <laughs> Someone was selling, uh, I think he was the drummer for a band called Kenny. I think they had a song called Do the Bump, and he had a studio in Northampton. So mum and dad bought it, took over, and I, I was like 13. So we were there every day after school and Saturdays and Sundays for like 15 years, maybe. Got to meet all the bands in Northampton. We were at that time, mid, late 90s. I think we were the only rehearsal studio. So all the bands came to us, met a lot of people. Was this something they had done previously as jobs or is it just suddenly like, oh no, actually we're leaving London, we're leaving the smoke, we're going to go and do something completely different? No, I think they wanted to move to a bit more of like countryside a bit more green, and we went to, we moved near my mum's parents. My dad's a musician, he always has been, but he's been like recording and gigging, same as me. He just saw the advert and thought, yeah, why not? So they went for it. 
Isn't that brilliant? I love that. Yeah. Wow. So you're soaking all this up and it's inevitable that you're going to fall into a, a career in music. And oh my goodness me, what a career it's, it's been. Very lucky, ain't I? You kind of almost stumbled into this and we'll talk about this story, but then now you're proper. I mean, so many albums are basically like you, Weller and a couple of others. <laughs> yeah, I, I do appreciate every, every little moment. I realize how lucky I am to be a part of something so big. Well, we're going to talk about the touring. We'll talk about the records. Let's talk first of all. When was it you first discovered the music of Paul Weller as a fan? I assumed you like his music. <laughs> to be honest, I only knew the, the big ones, you know, the, the singles and the hits. And I do remember sitting outside of my parents' old studio in the car and Changing Man was on the radio. I think one of them nipped in to get something. And I just stayed in the car and Changing Man was on. So I, I listened to all the details in that. But yeah, to be honest, I, I only knew the the classics. And, and like I lived with Crofty for a, a year or two. So I'd heard some stuff from him and um, and I, I saw Paul before I was in the band. So as a teenager... Oh, the rocker. Like, yeah. you were in a heavy metal band initially, weren't you? Yeah, uh, two or three, maybe. You won't talk about that too much. <laughs> I've never in my entire time doing any research on this podcast or as a Weller fan ever seen him give the thumbs up to any heavy metal so I don't know if this is a thing you have in common no, well we do have the Quo and uh, Ramones maybe a couple of others that I can't think of right now but we have got the Quo in common you're probably more connected with Rog the head roadie right uh, definitely not <laughs> he's got very different taste so Bill Bowie he's, he's a big Bowie fan so yeah we got that one in common so what was it you were soaking up what was it you were listening to as a teenager then well I got into the Beatles a bit later than I should have, but a band called Primus, their drummer was like a big inspiration. Early Genesis, like before Gabriel left, I was into that. But yeah, the Primus drummer, Tim Alexander, was um, I did copy him a fair bit. And there's a few little moments on some of Paul's recent records that I'll hear myself and be like, whoops, I've, I've nicked that off of him. <laughs> and yeah, I was a bit of a rocker, but then I got into the Beatles and then I started doing, I was in an indie band and then got into like electronic music. Let's touch on those influences. So were you always playing around behind the kit? Not really. Mum and dad bought me a kit when I was about five, I think. I just bashed around on it and I put darts in it and I put, I made holes in all the drums with darts and then they got rid of it. So I didn't touch a drum kit till I was about 15, 14. My dad was in one of the rehearsal rooms fixing a guitar amp and he was testing it out and oh, I was into Green Day at the time. I was like 14, 15. So I went and sat with him, but the only chair in the room was the, the drum stool. So I just sat on the drums and there was sticks there. He started playing Green Day and I just joined in. It was just funny how I, he's, he's just laughing. Like I, I knew how to play the drums. I didn't want to, I didn't want to learn or anything. I just knew how to do it. So I started getting lessons at school and I thought, nah, that ain't for me. So I just started copying early Phil Collins and early Primus and just learning by ear, really. And then I think, oh yeah, well, I was at the studio doing my homework and I was 15 and there was a band practicing and their drummer was a bit flaky and didn't turn up. So they said, do you want to just come and have a bash around with us? So I went and done that, and then at the end of like a two, three-hour rehearsal for them, but a bash around for me, they were like, do you want to do a gig next week? So I said, I'd ask mum and dad, who said yes, and then I'd done my first gig to like 300 people, I think. Wow, bravo. Northampton when I was 15. Was that free bass? No, that was a band called Junior Loaded. Whatever uh, happens to Junior Loaded, anything? Separate ways. Uh, one of the singers, a uh, photographer now, he's doing really well, does stuff for the Guinness Book of Records. Loud bass player does like, he used to do sort of, I don't know what he's doing now, but um, 
a lot of BBC introducing radio stuff. Yeah, I'm not too sure what the others. So you're 15, 16, and you, this is when you first go out on tour, like proper tour. Is that that band? Well, Junior Loaded were like just the odd gig here and there. So we travelled around the country and trash dressing rooms because we were all, well, they were like 18, 19, and I was 15. We'd just sort of tear it up a little bit. Jolly Boys, Free Bass, they were a bit more punky, like fast punk rock. But they took me to Germany and France and around Europe when I was around 17-ish. I was always a fill-in for them. I was never like a permanent member. I was on their first album and, and they took me around Europe, which was nice. And other influences in terms of drummers, I know that Paul Hester was a big one for you. Yeah, yeah. Um Split Ends, the band before Crowded House, he didn't join them till later on. But um, yeah, Split Ends and Crowded House, uh, well, Split Ends more than Crowded House, but every one of their albums was different. Like they started off quite folky, baroque, and then by the end, just the last album was quite sort of indie, a bit synthy, a lot of sort of digital things going on. It's a toss up between them and the Beatles as my Desert Island band. This would have been what, tail end of the 70s, very early 80s, right? Would that be yeah, right? Yeah. So yeah, you were going back to look at the, this stuff. Yeah, I was brought up on Split Ends, Laurel and Hardy. So yeah, they're, they're the big ones. But, um, yeah, Paul Hester's not, he's not a fancy drummer. He's not, he's not one of them that shows off and goes really fast and all that sort of stuff. But he's just his attitude towards playing and, um, he's the way he is, he is in the band with the other members. And yeah, he's playing's really good and he used to sing backing vocals as well. He's just, um, yeah, it was more of his style and technique rather than all the flashy stuff that I was influenced by. And then in more recent years, I saw you'd, you'd mention and name check Taylor Hawkins, who passed away, it had been like March before this yeah. last, right? And you got to meet him as well, didn't you? Yeah, we were, what did we do? It was a Jules Holland thing at the Albert Hall. We had like a, a scaled down setup, like an acoustic-y sort of thing. And I had kick snare and a pair of bongos, I think. We were in the dressing room and he just come running in and, and there was a, a few, a couple of girlfriends, wives in there that were all swooning over him. But he just come running in the dressing room saying, where's Bongo Man? And he wanted a photo with me, which is mental. But yeah, he's really nice. And um, yeah, he's really happy and really nice and kind. The great thing about going to see Weller Live these days, and we will pick up where you enter the band, but you go to Weller gig and at the minute we've got two of you there and you're doing all these bits with sound effects and you're drumming. We've got Steve Pilgrim drumming. Yeah. The two of you together have this incredible dynamic, but your technique as a drummer, like half the time you're standing up. Yeah, that's when, uh, when I'm doing more sample based stuff. Like, uh, I don't know, the strings, the violins in Shout to the Top, there's like 23, 24 different string and brass samples that I'll be doing in that one. And if I was sitting down, it would just be too hard to do. Plus, I've got to pick up tambourines and move around the kit a little bit. So it's easier to stand up. But when I'm drumming, I will sit down. Yeah, but it's a full, watching you, it's like a full workout. These gigs are, I mean, they're big, long things now because Paul has such a massive catalogue. But you must, I mean, you feel like you've done an evening's work, don't you? Well, you think so, but um, my there's, there's one gig recently where my headphones just went really loud. And then there was another gig when they went really quiet. And I've got a little pack on my on my belt and a little volume knob on it to, rather than a speaker monitor, we've got, we've got in-ears and it kept going loud and quiet. And it was my muffin tops turning the volume up and down. <laughs> so, um, it, 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 you sweat a little bit, but it doesn't get rid of your muffin tops or your chins. 
Uh, right, so we're up to tail end of the nineties, and you're in you're a couple of bands, like you say, free bass. There was this also this this heavy metal, female fronted heavy metal band, Defenestration. Yeah, I think that means to throw things out of a window, like uh, Keith Moon would. But yeah, they were they were good. We um, done a lot of touring around. You know, that lasted for about a year. But I'm, I made some good friends out of that. And I was in a college with with a couple of the members. One of which we started a band later on called Lux, and we were a lot more electronic and um, not metal, not rock. This fascination of the recording studio, the production techniques, sees you building your own studio and you're working with recording artists and musicians and singers, songwriters and that, and rappers, DJs, voiceovers. So what led you to creating your own thing? I'd had some nine to fives and I'd done a bit of stone masonry with my dad and I was just too into music to get a nine to five. So I got a Prince's Trust grant and with a little help from a friend who loaned some equipment, built a studio out the back of my parents' rehearsal studio and just started getting my mates' bands in as guinea pigs. And I'd done that for a couple of years where I'd just record bands and um, learn how to mix and learn all about EQ and mic positioning and editing. Editing's my thing, really. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with EQs and mixing and production, but editing is my speciality in the studio. Okay, are you the shoe in for Charles Reese if Charles ever decides to go off and do something different? Only if he goes off chatting for ages. If he's in the next room chatting about something for like 40 minutes and we want to listen back to something, I might sneak in and press a couple of buttons. Yeah, and having met Charles, that's probably quite often. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. But the thing is as well, you... My understanding is you you really dive into that analog recording and was and Paul has gone on this similar journey where everything was analog, but now we're you know we're layering things up on Pro Tools and stuff. But your focus initially was all around reel to reel and recording in that I guess that old fashioned style. Would that be right? It was, but only because of it was easier to learn EQ and how inputs and outputs worked on the desk, and it was just easier to start off that way. It just felt more basic. But once I'd earned a few quid getting bands in, we soon sold that and bought a computer and went digital. So it, it wasn't because of like the love of analog, which I'm, I appreciate more now. Yeah, I think it was just because that was the equipment that we had and it was easier to get started with rather than learning how to install programs and apps and plugins and etc. Obviously, you've played on so many albums, so many records, um, many number one albums as well, and big hits. The first thing, the first big recognition, I guess, is this Mercury Music Prize shortlist with Maps with James Chapman. And James Chapman, to explain this, this is a bit like Mike Skinner. If you think Mike Skinner's The Streets, then James was Maps, right? Yeah, Yeah. How did you team up with him? He was from like Northamptonshire, but his manager was in bands that used to come down our studio. And I, I think I was in a band with him for a, a few months, just like indie sort of stuff. Uh, that's when I cut all my hair off and, and stopped being a rocker. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he, he said, we need a drummer for the maps. Do you want to come to a gig? And, and I went along and, and that was that. And I was in them for about a year as a session musician, but we were all really good mates. So it felt like a band. And yeah, we went all around America and that was my first time in America with, with Maps. That album, that first album was Mercury Music Prize shortlisted as well. So you, you got to perform at the awards ceremony, presumably. Yeah, that was uh, an experience, yeah. Wow. Gosh. Got to meet Dizzy uh, Rascal and Amy Winehouse. I think the Claxons won it that year. And then that leads into the moons. So you mentioned Andy Crofts. Uh, had you been living with him prior to forming a band together? That came later. I must have met him when I was around... 
16 because they'd, they'd always practiced at my parents' studio. So I must maybe even earlier than that. Yeah, I might have been like 14 or 15 when we first met because he, he just used to come down the studio every week with his band called Circa. And then he ended up in a band called The On-Offs and I think they played with the Zootons and Paul was at that gig and they, and they got chatting. And then he started The Moons and I think we had a year or two doing The Moons and then I, then we moved in together later on. And the Moons featured quite a lot of the Weller alumni, as I call them, because Tom was part of that setup as well. Is the Moons still a thing now? Was it a thing for that period of time? Will there be more stuff from the Moons? What's the, what's yeah. the latest on it? I'm not too sure. We um, Andy's got a lot of stuff going on at the moment, doing solo stuff. I think he's just about to go on tour. We've all got our own thing going on at the moment. I'm not too sure if or when any Moon stuff's going to happen. Okay. So that album, Life on Earth, was the first album recorded at Blackburn. So this is, I guess, the first connection with Weller. Although I don't know if you met Paul at that point. Yeah, we went out for dinner. I think he took us out for Chinese food. Then we went back to the studio and we might have had a drink and recorded some pretty shocking overdubs on a couple of the songs. But um, yeah, that's the first time that I met Paul, yeah. Okay, this is the first mention of any other restaurant that's not the Ripley Curry Garden. <laughs> I know, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> There's Chinese it, involved. Well, it's it's just down the road. It was like a pub, and I think they had like a Chinese night. Maybe the Curry Garden weren't there then. Oh, yeah, could have been. Okay. why we wouldn't have gone there. This leads to you somehow joining the band. So take me through that story. How does it lead from there to getting to be part of the Weller Band? So Andy got chatting with Paul. Andy got the gig playing keys. Paul had five gigs at the Roundhouse playing the Sonic Kicks album in full. They had a technician, keyboard technician called Davo, who everyone knows. And Davo used to sort of trigger some samples from the side of the stage. Sometimes he'd go on and press a couple of buttons on a keyboard next to Crofty. But he couldn't make these Roundhouse gigs. So I was asked to step in for him just for the Roundhouse gigs. So I got all the samples I could off of him and got Charles to send me a load of stems of sound effects and things that I would chop up. And some of the older songs, it's hard to get the original sounds like the, um, I don't know, like the Shout to the Top String. So I had to replicate all of them because you'd have to dig the tapes out and bake the tapes, whatever that means. And then I'd have to chop them up. So it was easier to replicate. I'd done all that. And then we had two days rehearsal at the barn. Maybe done Jonathan Ross. This is, so I was uh, <laughs> a little bit nervous. So I'd done two days rehearsal and then Jonathan Ross and then, um, yeah, five days at the roundhouse. And the samples has been a key part of the show since. And I mean, people wouldn't necessarily know that that's what's happening when they're hearing it and seeing it, right? There's yeah. so much of that within the set list now, isn't there? Yeah, there are. It's because Paul moves with the times, don't he? And he moves with the, the equipment and the, like the setup that they've got down the barn. You, you've got everything you need. There's a lot of, a lot of sound effects, maybe even like vocal effects and things that are hard to replicate with like, um, the front of house sound engineer. It's, you can get close, but sometimes it's easier to just get the actual sound, put it on a sampler and then whack it with a drumstick. Yeah, and I also imagine that, I mean, some of the things are quite expensive to replicate. So like taking the strings section yeah. or orchestra on the railway, it's actually, if you've got it on your pads there. So talk me through what that is. I mean, this is probably me being a bit geeky and we'll lose our entire audience now, but talk me through like you're feeding this into a machine and then you're whacking it with a stick to make it happen? What? Yeah, there's like, keep going back to shout to the top. There's 20 string notes, 20 different notes. Some of them are the same note, but different lengths. So I sat on my computer and played each note 
like the short ones and the long ones. And then I edited them so they're long enough because we don't play to a click when we don't have to. We don't play to a metronome. So if we're playing the song faster or slower, the samples are a set length. So if we decide to play it slower, I need the samples to be longer. So I have to decide when each one cuts off. I'm boring myself now. But, um, <laughs> no, this is fascinating. My God. So yeah, imagine 20 buttons and each one has a different violin sound on it. So I will play them in a certain sequence that make the shout to the top strings. And I guess also how that's laid out on that pad is not uniform. Somebody else couldn't get up there and do what you're doing because they wouldn't know how you fed it in and what's what on what button, right? Yeah, good. I've made myself irreplaceable. I'm sure Jay could figure it out. <laughs> Bit of playing around with it. But so, okay, so this is Sonic King. So I remember being at that first gig. It was a Sunday night. I don't even think the album was out. No, the, I think the first, the first gig we did, the album wasn't out. I think it was the second gig we were stood at the side of the stage getting ready to go on. And there might have been like some sort of intro walk-on music and someone in the crowd was like, oi. And I looked at him and he's pointing at me and he goes, you're rubbish. And I'm like, oh, thanks for that, mate. Bit of confidence. Wow. I think the album was out on that, that second gig. So, um, yeah, I don't think that was the reason yeah, people- shouted at me to tell me I'm rubbish. <laughs> what does that mean? Bloody hell. I hope that person's not listening. Wait for you, what a tosser. He probably um- had a... Probably had a jam T-shirt on. <laughs> but you weren't just firing the samples of that gig. You were doing drums and, and percussion as well, right? When I got to that first rehearsal, I didn't really know exactly what I was doing. I, I knew I was doing samples mostly, but I think it was Rog or Kenny were just like, set your kit up there. So I'm like, set a drum kit up and my sampler. Pilgrim walked in and was like, hang on a minute, what's going on here? It's this young upstart, yeah. <laughs> but um, I had everything. It was like the Starship Enterprise with so many lights and bongos and all sorts going on. So the more we played, the more I'd figured out what I didn't need and could take away. I'm constantly trying to make my setup smaller, but because Paul's songs are so, uh, so different, I, I do need quite a lot of equipment. And the thing about the Sonic Kicks gigs as well was the, so it was the full album, wasn't it? It was the album from end to end. Then you had a yeah, little, little break and acoustic and then a break and electric, I think, if I remember rightly. Uh, I don't think we did the acoustic set. I think it was the full album and then we came back on and, and did some bangers. Because I remember Paul at the time saying, because everybody was doing like their classic album, weren't they? Like Suede were coming back or Keen or whatever it was. Oh, really? And he was like, I'm playing, I'm playing my classic album. It's my new one that's not even yeah. out. Yeah. And, uh, it's not even out yet. And there were a few faces of like, not knowing what's going on in the crowd, but, um, a lot of them were really taking it in and paying attention. When someone doesn't know, like, cause we've been playing a new song that isn't, isn't out yet on the last couple of tours and just, seeing people's reaction it's it's like almost like they just stop and listen and, and take it in and or record it on their phone and put it on youtube as a weller fan it's great that you get these moments where it feels like the band and he is taken out of the comfort zone he loves doing that he, he loves it when uh he, i'm sure that he would love playing the last few albums and then a few older songs that are not as popular as people would like but there's a demand from an audience with an expectation that they expect some of the bangers and all that kind of stuff, which must trying to get that balance. It must be impossible. You're not going to please everybody, but you, even things like other aspects where it's just this one-off gig and actually you've got a full orchestra there. That's taking you like right out of your comfort zone, isn't it? Yeah, that was good. Were you at that? Yeah, the festival hall. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, that was um totally different to what we were all used to. We thought it'd be easy and we'd done a little a little tour beforehand of just sort of acoustic stuff and that was pretty easy but when we sat there with the actual orchestra it was a whole different you could hear a pin drop it was 
we had to be very good. Like no mistakes at all. So something like that, where it's totally out of the comfort zone, is you're not used to this. This isn't the norm of a Weller gig. Well, we were well rehearsed, so I wasn't wasn't nervous about the playing. Plus, I was on drums, and there was no samples and hardly any percussion, so I was just sat at the kit. So it was a lot easier, a lot less going on. But I remember put a black shirt on. It had a hole in the shoulder, and it was getting filmed, wasn't it? So I yeah. thought I can't go on with a hole. So I coloured my shoulder in with a sharpie. So it was like I had, I had like a black patch on my shoulder underneath the shirt so you couldn't see the hole and then changed my mind to put a white jumper on. So that was what was going through my mind before the gig. We were well rehearsed, so um yeah, there was no there's no nerves. Okay, all right. European tour was fairly recently. You're all yeah. together on that tour bus. And that's where the relationships are really formed or broken, I would guess. Yeah. <laughs> what are the rules on the tour bus, Ben? Um no, there's there's one um, like it's a bit dirty, and you know, I don't think we about it. <laughs> well, let me hear it, and then I can decide whether we put it in, right? So <laughs> uh, no, no solids at the bus on the bus. Oh, a rule. Uh, what else? Don't give Mark security potatoes. Um, <laughs> Does that it. have an adverse effect? <laughs> that's all you're getting. <laughs> what the potatoes? What is that called? Like a chain reaction? <laughs> um, it it makes him burp. Oh, nice. But burps don't smell like burps, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> well, and there's no solids on a bus. That's a good rule. That's that is a good rule. Yes, no solids. First recording with Paul would have been, I think it was a Beatles cover. Was it Birthday? No, it oh, was. Uh, that's one that we had. What was it? Crofty got me down the studio just for just for a jolly up and I think just hang out and have a curry and a beer maybe. But um, Paul was doing the attic and um something else what was it um the piper maybe it was a b-side the other song i did was a b-side they didn't have any drums on the attic and i think uh it was a brendan lynch was it I said to paul do, do you think it needs drums and then paul turned to me do you want to put some drums on it uh, yeah so yeah i just went in and showed off as much as i could without being showy off and um and it made it on the record yeah at that time, we get things like Modern Classics Part 2, where there were some little bonuses. There was Record Store Day, where there was Flame Out, the old original, and songs like that you were playing on. Before we get to like a full album. Yeah, brand new thing. Yeah. I think that was before Birthday as well, was it? You know more than me. <laughs> well, I don't know the recording dates. I, I, I got one fact wrong already, which I'm going to yeah, beat myself up about one. later, Ben. You, know. you were due one, weren't you? Yeah, to be fair. Yeah. You, you know I'll edit that out, right? To correct myself. Ah. <laughs> no, of course I won't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're down at Blackburn a lot from this point onwards because you know, Steve Brooks records down there and you're all over Hoodoo Zoo. The Weller Band at that point are recording like things like Saturn's Pattern. You start becoming more of a regular fixture at the studio as well then. Yeah. Very grateful to be asked back so much. What I find really interesting is the connection between all of you in the band. Ooh. Black Barn Studio has been talked about of being, yes, it is the studio where you create this magic, you know, but it is also obviously as Weller HQ, right? And it feels like it's a real family vibe down there, like you're going out for dinner and all that. You're socialising, but you're working hard as well, right? Yeah, sort of an equal, an equal balance of the two. We had a tour recently where I had to bring my son with us on tour for like eight or nine days maybe. And we had two or three days rehearsal and he was just out, outside playing football and, and there were so many crew and, and Bill was walking around. And so, yeah, they just, as they're walking past, they'll have a little kick around with him for five minutes. So he was happy, but there's always people visiting and a lot of family members showing up. It sounds like it's a really inspirational, creative, but collaborative 
vibe that you're all bouncing ideas off each other. This is not just yeah. Paul coming in and going, Ben, you need to do this. Right, that's great. Thanks. You can sometimes, clear off now. <laughs> and sometimes yeah. sometimes he knows exactly what what he wants and he'll he'll talk down the talk back and say, No, put the snare here or whack a symbol there or but sometimes he just lets me go for it and, and do what I think, whether he likes it or not, is a different story but it was got like um brand new toy we were both listening to the song before it had drums on it and i was like i know exactly what it needs like some songs just they play themselves and you know what the song needs and we both had the exact same idea like the backwards drum beat thing and it was just like we don't need to explain this and i just went in and done it i think that's so brilliant though when you have an artist who you know now we're talking about 45 years of music but he still wants to be collaborative and hear from you know young people yeah. coming into the band and stuff because that's not going to be true of most artists i wouldn't have thought no um it, i saw him at the albert hall years but before i was in the band i think and um, well yeah it would have been because i went on the yeah. on stage but he had, he had a rapper and i could just see other people in the crowd just like what's what's he doing but just like he's doing what he wants, he's doing he's doing what he enjoys. And I listened to a song called Earthbeat the other day, and it's just there's like two guest vocalists on it. Yeah, whatever's right for the song, I suppose. Is that the conversation? Yeah, you, you do serve the song. Yeah. Let's talk about some of these big gigs that have happened and some of the places that you've been with Weller. So, I mean, Glastonbury, and this was early yeah. on. So this would have been what 2015. So early on in your band time with Weller, right? Yeah, I'd only been doing it for what three years. I think we were there for about two hours. We got there. Changed my shirt, done the gig, changed my shirt, watched a bit of the Who, and then we were we were off. So I didn't get to experience the uh, the outside part of Glastonbury, just the backstage bit. I'm not too fussed about that. There's so much of it to explore. Um, I'm I'm not sure if I'm that bothered about going to Glastonbury, but yeah, a massive experience playing to that many people and that sort of hazy mist across the crowd and all the flags and everything. It was yeah, I'll never forget it. I mean, it's a massive festival. You're right. And I've not been for years because it just keeps, it's like a huge city in itself these days. It's incredible. Yeah. It is a special thing, but it's also on telly. So you, you had the right shirt. You didn't have to color in your shoulder or anything on that one. No, no. Uh, I didn't even, I didn't think about it then. <laughs> Jules Holland, you mentioned earlier on like Jonathan Ross, the TV performances are, are always really special for us as well. Jules Holland, there was Hootenanny around that time too, which for those that don't know is obviously not on New Year's Eve because we all know now it's pre-recorded, which is a bit oh, of a shame, right? Probably. Yeah, <laughs> but you get to have another, an extra party. So it's yeah, fun. but you must be pinching yourself totally when you're on like moments like that, which you've grown up watching those things, and then suddenly you're part of it. Yeah, a lot of things on my list have been well, all the things on my list have been ticked now. Um, so I had to I had to make a new list or start adding things. Oh, um, the only one left now is Madison Square Garden. I haven't done that yet. Uh, that was John Weller's big thing for Paul. Like uh, somebody mentioned that on the podcast. He'd all, he always wanted Paul to play Madison Square Garden. So that's got to happen. 2024. Come on. Yeah. There was talk about supporting someone a few years ago, like the Who or someone like that. And it didn't happen. But yeah. So I'm, I'm sort of making new things to add to the list now. Like we've done Jules and we've done Wembley and done Abbey Road. When, so Wembley was this year. Paul's first time back playing William Sa Wembley Stadium since Life Aid, ridiculously. Um, yeah, and you're supporting Blur, but I mean, what a lineup! What a night that must have been. I didn't get to go to that gig annoyingly, but um, that that looks really special. Yeah, I had my family there with me, and um, and we were, to be honest, I was in the dressing room most of the day, and I, I met some really nice people. And my son was frisbeeing paper plates off of the balcony into the into the auditorium. It was it was just a really nice night and a nice sort of build up to the show. Like just sitting in the van for a couple of hours on the way there was just exciting and there was a nice sort of a nice buzz between the band members. Your son's Arcee, is that right? Yeah, he's eight. 
He's eight, so yeah, similar age to my my eldest, who's, who's just just turned nine. What does he make of all this then, Dad? Having this type of lifestyle, and particularly because he's been joining you on the road or rehearsals or whatever, some yeah. of these things. No, he loves it that um, that I'm happy doing what I want to do. It's not so nice when I go away for a month or whatever. But um, the flip side is that I get to spend more time with him in between tours, which I'm very grateful for. If I had a, a normal hours nine to five I'd, I'd see him for an hour after work and weekends maybe but like yeah i do get to spend a lot more time with him having this sort of job and yeah we um we had to take him on tour for a, a week and he got to play maracas to malice probably in front of like nine thousand people <laughs> you don't get that every day which was yeah the, you don't get to do that often yeah Let's talk about you and Steve Pilgrim and the relationship you have as drummers, because it, it looks to me like there's almost like this kind of telepathic connection between you both. And that's not just down to rehearsing the heck out of this thing. Yeah, um, I think we know we know each other's styles. We've got different styles and we know how to bounce off of each other. Playing together for years does help. The different styles thing definitely, definitely helps. Like I know, I think I know what he's going to do next so i will um play something different if you know what i mean i won't just play play the first thing that comes into my mind i'll think well he's gonna do this so i'm gonna play off of that and him vice versa and there's little moments where i'll be doing something on the bongos for um my mind's gone blank now i'm doing this <laughs> what you mean the song you're trying to think of this <laughs> yeah what's the song it's like a latin east old council one uh ever changing moods yeah all that sort of stuff like there's little things that he picks up on that, that I'm doing that he'll pick up on and he'll do a feel that will match up to what I'm doing. And yeah, we do really work together. Yeah. It's that thing. I, I can't get my head around this because I'm not a musician. I've never been in bands. I can't play any instruments or whatever. So I can't understand that bit where, you know, there's quite a lot of you in the band, but you all, it's all connections where somebody can go off in a slightly different direction and the rest of you seem to follow or know like, it's that safety. You, I don't yeah. know how that happens. It's remarkable. There's a lot of knowing when not to play, which is another good thing between me and Pilgrim. Like we know when, if, if he's going to do a fill or something fancy, I'll hold back a little bit and I, I won't do anything that's mad timings, but. There's certain moments when we rehearse, we'll listen back to the rehearsals and there's certain things that stand out and we're like, right, well, if Craddock's doing this nice guitar part there, I'm going to step back a bit and and I'm going to come off the mic or I'm going to be really simple or maybe even stop playing. So those little moments we all pick up on, sometimes it's addressed and we'll be like, how about when Steve's doing that, we all back off. But a lot of the time it's just, it just happens. Like if Jacko's doing something, We'll do something that either works with what he's doing or we'll just step back and knowing when not to play is a, a big thing. Especially because there's, so, there's like seven of us and, and there were, there have been moments where we think, right, this is a quiet part. So let's do something interesting. And when we all do something interesting at the same time, it's like a mess. Yeah. We're, we're good at sort of bouncing off of each other and knowing when not to play. I hadn't even thought about the fact that you're listening back to this as well then. So what are you recording the whole thing and then listening back or song by song? Both. Sometimes we'll, if, if a song's really sort of needs working on, we, we might play it a few times and then go in and put the kettle on and listen to the last two, three versions and see which one's best. That's more of a recording thing. But in rehearsals, we'll, we'll do a few songs and if things need addressing, we'll, we'll listen back to a specific song. So can we hear the middle eight of 
of whatever it was to make sure that this works. Um, a lot of that with like BVs and, and harmonies and stuff, we'll go back and check all of that and make sure we're all doing what we're supposed to be. Those little details, isn't it? It is about those things which take it to the next level and cement you as a band together is, is fascinating. I have to say. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There are some songs which don't make the set list immediately. And I wondered if that's because you guys are figuring out how to do them. Fat Pop was one. I love Fat Pop, the single Fat Pop. I thought it was terrific off of the album. But it took a while to get that into the set list. There's some songs where you go, we're not quite sure how to do this live, or you're not sure if it's going to work live. Yeah, both of those, really. Um, I'm not sure about the Fat Pop thing, but sometimes we will do a version of, or um, sometimes we've just got so many songs that we have to just filter out the ones that we feel are less... No, not even less strong, but it's like, it's hard to choose. I think there's about 30 songs in the set list. Paul sent us a list once of like 60 songs to learn for a rehearsal. So there's a lot of filtering out that he does. We can sort of suggest, uh, can we try this or can we make sure this one stays in the set? Yeah. Sometimes some songs just like if they need a lot of working out. And we, if we've got 30 really good tight songs and there's a few that we want to try that aren't really sounding good straight away that need a lot of work a lot of figuring we will um, save those for later have you got particular favourites in the set list over recent years that for you and your role you absolutely love I like uh, Old Father Time I like playing drums on that one I think I do like the sort of sample songs maybe not more but equally as much as playing the drums back to Shout to the Top again I really like playing that one because there's there's so much going on and Fat Pop's a good one to play there's a lot of samples in that yeah you can see you firing those things off which I, do. I love it it's great it's great to watch as an audience member as well let's talk about some of the of the album so I mentioned Saturn's Pattern you're yeah. all over that on drums Kind Revolution your drums and percussion on every single track from Woozy Mama to Long Long Road right through to you know New York One's Here the Brilliant Boy George collaboration how much of that is you in the studio as a band I mean I guess it's different for every song but how much of that is you in the studio working that out as a band versus you're layering things up on Pro these days it depends on the song there's some songs where you need drum at least drums bass and guitar or drums bass and piano played live together but then there's some songs especially with the more digital sounding songs where there's a lot of samples and and uh keyboardy things going on then ones you can get away with with uh recording instruments separately but there are some some more sort of acoustic-y stuff or like the rockier stuff you do benefit from playing in a room together and, and bouncing off of each other in in the same room and there are those songs i guess also and paul's always done this where road testing them live helps as well and you mentioned on the the most recent tour there was a song when i saw him in may in amsterdam it was called take more recently it's been called jumble queen on the european set list but road testing those songs and he's always done this chucking in something we've not yet heard really helps for when you come to record that presumably yeah, uh, that's a good example. I think before we toured that song, there was, I don't know if I'm giving away too many secrets, am I going to get told off? But um, 
it, it was like digital drums, like a drum drum samples with a real drum kit, but quietly in the background just to just to help the song, help the drum beat feel better. But I think after touring it, Paul just thought he prefers the real sounding drums to it. So we, we swapped the digital ones for the real ones. Yeah, I love that idea of kind of road test, because that's what you'd have always, that's what they would have done for before they recorded in the city, right? Yeah, everything was road tested, but these days you don't have, that's not always happening, is it? I guess because it's harder for an audience, they want to hear the stuff they know, presumably. Yeah, I do miss those, miss those days sometimes. Not, not all the time, but like being in bands in my late teens, early twenties, you'd, you'd write songs and tour them and drill them in and then you go and record them. I do miss that a little bit. A kind revolution, that core of the album really was you, Paul and Andy Crofts, the three of you and then other people coming in. So were you, you were in the studio every day, all of you working on that, presumably. It's, there's no pattern. It's not like we'll, we'll have a set pattern where we'll go in for five days a week for a month or whatever. It's, it's just, I'll get a text saying, you fancy coming down this date and you don't say no to Paul. So straight away, yeah, I'll be there and I'll figure out what my son's doing later on. He can go to my parents. But, um, yeah, there's, there's never any set pattern. And sometimes you'll go down. I've been down there once before and. I don't think I ended up doing anything and was just, just hanging out. And I think just I went down. To, <laughs> yeah, I went down to record two or three drum tracks and ended up thinking it's good as it is. You don't need drums or it doesn't need re-recording. So it was just end up eating curry and <laughs> <laughs> muffin tops again. Uh, I remember when that album came out, there was a mojo quote. You must remember this, right? So where Weller said, Ben's one of the best drummers I've ever played with. How about that? And there've been some bloody good drummers, right? <laughs> I know. Fancy that. He texted me, well, he texted me that once and, um, I should have screenshotted it, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's something, uh, that's special, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, straight on your LinkedIn with that, right? That's, uh, that's updating the profile. Oh, yeah, it's all on my, uh, in my bio and all that on me, on <laughs> me Instagrams. He tours that album and you're back to the US. Canada and Australia. So this was your first time in Oz, wasn't it? Uh, the Opera House. Yeah. Yeah. Three nights sold out. But when we got there, I think we just, had we been to Japan before that and we were all jet lagged anyway. We had that night off and it was Australia day. So, which we didn't know about. We just went for a cocktail on the, um, down in the, the docks in Sydney. And then they put all these big gates up and sort of shut everyone in and you couldn't get out. And then all these fireworks were going off and bands were playing and it was very surreal. The biggest, loudest firework display you've ever seen. And then, uh, yeah, the next day we done, done the opera house. And just recently it been announced that you're going to be back there February 2024. It's probably sold out now, but three nights in a row again. There must be, I mean, as you look to the calendar next year, I know not all of it's, you know, clearly not all of it's been announced yet, but you must have a real buzz. I mean, admittedly, there's also the challenges of childcare, right? But there must be a real buzz when you look at that calendar. And we already, we know Japan, we know Australia, there's some summer stuff with, um, you know, various castles. As you look at your calendar and you're pointing them in, this must be such a buzz to be part of this. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Being able to see all the different cultures and, um, and just meet all those people. Japanese and the uh, Canadians are some of the, the nicest people that I've met. The audiences in Japan have been mentioned quite a bit on the podcast. And I mean, that's just off the scale, isn't it? When you get to the train station, there'll, there'll be fans there waiting for your train and like at the airport and following you down. I think we'd get off the plane and then walk to the train station last time we were there. And there's fans like you've all got your own individual little fans and, and they bring you presents and there's fans at the hotel. and Yes, it's mental. <laughs> First number one album that you played on, I don't think it was a Paul Weller album. Uh, Maps? Uh, was that number one? I don't know. I don't know if that, I, I thought it was Magnus Carlson. 
Oh, yeah. Was that before? Hang on. Um, about Sonic Kicks, was that a number one? Uh, yeah, that would have been. There we go. I'm oh, song. Does that second, count? Second fact wrong, Jennings. Damn it. Yeah, yeah. Is that, does that count if I'm only on one song, though? Yeah, well, you're on it. I mean, it's more than I am. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, yeah right. I, I'd have that. I'd have uh, that, yeah. So, but I think 2017, you also start branching out even more and working with other artists more than you had done. And certainly in the Weller setup, people like, you know, we get PP Arnold later on. I mentioned Steve Brooks, but this is, yeah, Magnus Carlsen. This was a Swedish number one album. Den Langer Vangen Hem. That was Andy Lewis, Paul's old bass player. He, I don't know how he got in with, with him, but, um, I was listening to some of this the other day, you know, he got in with him and produced that album. So he got me on drums for it. Yeah, and we done it down the barn. I remember Andy Lewis having a metal tray with like a metal teapot and a couple of other metal things just whacking it with a drum, <laughs> whacking it with a drumstick. <laughs> One of the songs. Whatever yeah, creates noise and rhythm and, and music, right? Yeah, fine. Yeah, but Magnus was nice. And uh, I think it took us like a week or so, like five or six days down the barn doing that. And I guess that, that keeps things... I mean, not, you know, Paul's always keeping things fresh I and mean, it's a ridiculous thing for me to say because he's always moving on to new things. But working with other artists for you as well is, is interesting and special, I presume. People like Steve Ellis, Declan O'Rourke, people like that. Yeah, Declan's a genius. And Steve Ellis is really nice. I was on my way home. I think we'd had a session down the barn and I was leaving. So I went in in the morning just to say bye to everyone. And I think that might have been the first time I met Steve Ellis. And he was like, oh, well, I'm doing my album. Can you stay and put drums on it? He goes, I'll give you a quid. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I stayed for like two days and put drums on some of his songs. And he, he uh, a few months later, give me a quid. <laughs> but I'm going to put my price up for the next one. To, to gonna, you need to look at your rates, man. I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> doubling, doubling it next time, mate. I want to talk about lockdown and those periods where suddenly this is all switched off from a gigging point of view because the whole thing, the music thing, collapsed for everybody. You're there at home, you're locked down, the touring schedules, like everything's just wiped off the schedule. On Sunset comes out, so that was already in the bag. And then Paul's approach is to record another album because what else are you going to do? And records Fat Pop and sending things remotely to everybody and all that. But take me through that because that must have been I mean, just so hard to keep that together and just wondering where things are going going to go as a gigging musician, right? Yeah, we were supposed to be on tour, weren't we? And um, and it got cancelled and Paul being Paul was like, all right, well, I'm going to do another album then. So um, he sent like a few songs, two or three that I did at home. Still Glides the Stream is one of them. Yeah, it was just nice to be trusted enough to record it. I did do a few different takes or a few different ideas, and he picked his favourite. And how does it come over to you? Because we've heard on the podcast, like Paul working in a different way now, where he's using voice notes on his phone, and there's a 2am text. I don't know if you get those as well, like everybody else has done. Yeah, it would just be him doing a beatboxing down the phone at me <laughs> sometimes, which is nice. <laughs> he needs to save those for the special editions box sets in years to come. Yeah, the anthology. <laughs> yeah, there's only there's only like two or three people of my mates that you can text that the sort of I reckon four a.m. is like the cutoff. Don't text Paul between four a.m. and maybe ten a.m. Yeah, if you get a text at two three in the morning, there's only it's going to be him or like or Tom. Um, let me pick up again on the moons. So um, I'm reaching over to bring this. I don't know why it's you know it's a podcast, but this is a very special thing. This is the moons pocket melodies. Yeah, and it's terrific. Terrific piece of work. Recorded, pretty much all recorded live in Studio 2, Abbey Road. Yeah, we definitely made the most of, of our day in Abbey Road. Um, someone, what did, I can't remember, um, 
His name's Rob, and he is uh, Terry Pratchett's like PA, or it's like Terry Pratchett's right hand man. And sadly, Terry Pratchett isn't with us anymore. So he invested some of some of the money into that day in Abbey Road and said, do you want to go into Abbey Road for a day? So we're like, right, how many songs can we do? Let's do an album. So we rehearsed as much as we could for two days and then um, went in and, and, yeah, done 14 songs in a day. Because there was orchestra on that and everything all in the same room at Abbey Road, is that right? Yeah, we should have, like, separated them and and put everyone in because there's a little room where we could have put the quartet, which we should have done for sound reasons, but we were all excited and we wanted it to be... We wanted it to look good in the photos and video and all that, so yeah. we uh, we stuck us all in the same room. So it was hard mixing it. There was a lot of a lot of tidying up and editing to do to get rid of spill and stuff like that. Mainly, that was a nice day. And there's a proper Beatles nut that you all are ridiculous that you're getting that opportunity, really, isn't it? Yeah, we had been there before, but just walking in that room and and the smell of the like the wooden floor and you're looking at every little floor tile. And if you if there's a loose one, you know, I'm having that, but there's a little room out the the echo chamber out the back, the reverb room. It's just like an empty tile room with a couple of bags of cement gonard in the corner. But um, yeah, it's, it's Abbey Road. And I guess also as a, the production guy of you watching these these engineers and this is their day to day job. It's such an experience, isn't it, to see that whole thing in action, not just recording in the room, but everything that goes with that. Yeah, and we, I've had the, like a couple of microphones on the drums and one of them was just above my head and I'm looking at it and thinking, hang on a minute, that looks old. So I'm going through all pictures of the Beatles in uh, Studio 2, finding pictures of them and trying comparing microphones and asking them, like, is this this? And could that be the same microphone? But they don't know. They've got so many of them that, <laughs> that they weren't sure. So we just pretended that, that they were. Oh, and we broke the... Uh, the Hammond, the, I think it was the, uh, was it Sergeant Pepper's, a, a, a Hammond that was used on a massive song. And Tom started playing it and it just clicked and stopped working. So they had to, we broke the Beatles Hammond. <laughs> Never to be used again. <laughs> what did you make of the latest release, the final Beatles song? I, I guess, yeah. I would imagine you were all chatting all about that, were you? I haven't heard it. I'm, I'm too scared to do it. <laughs> what? I know. What? Is that bad? It's strange. I don't know if it's bad. Are they, you're not all like that. Surely Paul's listened to it. Or do you not like? He, he loves it. They could they could fart down the microphone and he would love it. <laughs> but, um, I uh, I haven't done it yet. I'm I'm uh, I've got a new boiler in, so I'm decorating. Then <laughs> the best time to listen to music. Yeah, you'd have thought. Um, but... I think I'm scared. You know. Because it won't live up to expectations. I mean, it can't live up to expectations, right? But yeah, it's... and all this is the last the last ever song, but. It's not though, I and mean, it's been out before. It's, it was on some old demos, and, and it's been heard before. It's just been revamped. But um, "Free as a Bird" was alright. I like that one. Did you have a favourite Beatles? Uh, Paul and George, big McCartney fan. I bet that was a buzz then, doing "Birthday" and playing with Paul Weller on that one. Yeah, and, and uh, sending a song to McCartney for his birthday. I never got to meet him though. No, I haven't met him yet. On Sunset for me was a really special album. Again, you were, you know, all over that with drums, percussion, the sound effects. I think you played violin on that, but was that like a sample or was that you actually playing violin? No, that was me actually playing an actual violin in tune as well. I mean, there's no end to your talents, Ben. How does this come? Oh, yeah, multi-talented, me. I just had an idea and there was a violin knocking around. So I played two notes and recorded that part. It was on Village. 
towards the end of the middle eight on village and I played those two notes just like little stabby notes and then uh, pressed record again and recorded two other notes so it was like a four note chord and then uh, they say that it's still on there I don't know if I believe them or not but, yeah, but you got credit you got credit for it so that's you know? Yeah, I think I thought it was just Charles being nice, but um, but there are a proper orchestra or a quartet, whatever's on it as well. Then it might have kept me. Hopefully, they kept me. The album has so many different layers, so many different textures, and um, I mean, I remember Trig um, talking about the brush strokes that Paul was able to paint on the album. That one felt very special in terms of that, like every little flourish, every little bit of detail being added. It's layered up. It's layered up. Yeah, he has taught me a lot everybody's different and there's no rules. And that's one thing I've learned from Paul is that there's no, there's no rules if it sounds right or if it feels right. Like there's a couple of parts where I'm thinking, no, that's out of tune. Like let's change that. And and then he'll say, yeah, but it's not though, or it's art and it? it's, it's, it's not bad. It's not horrible. But yeah, no, he's, he's taught me to be less, well, more precious and less precious as well. But those, those little details are, um, those little clever moments. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of, those little little clever moments, even if it's just one little chord in the whole song, it doesn't have to be a part in uh, that keeps coming in and out. It could just be one little detail that that you might not hear on the first, second, or third listen. It's just all, all these different textures that make it art. And I guess there must be things where you do that and you go, oh, "That doesn't work." Take it back off again. Yeah, well, like background noises that, like, I've got a little studio at home and I, I record drums here and mix and produce stuff. And, um, like, if an ambulance goes past, it'll some usually make it in, it'll still be in the song. Um, <laughs> not obviously an ambulance, but it might just be like a little, little detail and, um, you might only hear it in one ear or all these little things that, that are not always intentional, but we're lucky to be, to have the equipment and, and the barn, especially to, to be able to do these things. Cause you're not on the clock. You're not kind of paying for the hour of the studio. You can, you can yeah. experiment in that way, can't you? Yeah. And they got a loud cock rule next door. I think that's been on an album. I think Charles has recorded the wind at some point. <laughs> I think they had to pay out royalties to the wind, yeah. Obviously, as you'd expect on the podcast, I've been stalking your Instagram. You mentioned it right at the top of this podcast recording, Lauren Hardy. You are Lauren Hardy obsessed, man. Yeah. That type of thing, that type of old school comedies come up on the podcast before where Paul Weller and Mick were the style council days. They were probably obsessed with carry on and the stuff. But is the Lauren Hardy thing just for you or the best of the band into it? What's the deal? I do try to get people to get people into it. I think Tom's pretty new to it I'm still trying to convince him I think Jake's up for it I think Paul used to be a fan a Lauren and Hardy fan I'm sure I saw a little like a newspaper clipping of an old interview and it was like what are you listening to or watching on the bus and I think Lauren and Hardy was on there so I know he does appreciate it not sure if he's that bothered as much anymore but um, yeah I was, I was just brought up on it yeah and when we were last in LA I, I went and done a couple of filming locations like the music box the one the famous one where they get the piano up the stairs I went there and I went to a, a house that um, they filmed at just stood there I've been to Stan Laurel's house multiple times where he was born in the Lake District and there's a museum there and I want to go to their graves though so next time I'm in LA I'm going to hire a car and go off visit the graves Nice. Well, I look forward to seeing that on your Instagram. Let's get back to the music. I want to talk about some of the more recent releases, more recent recordings. Would have been last year now, this single with you, Paul Weller, and Suggs, and a song called Who Do You Think You Are? Yeah, that's, that's all right, isn't it? 
<laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Was that one where you're all in the studio together? I think that was a, most of it is done and can you put drums on it? I can't remember, you know, there's so many different, like, that, that we could finish the session and everyone's gone to bed and it'll just be me and Paul and Charles and he'll go, oh, can you just sit on the kit? And next thing you know, you've got like the cranes are back or something like that. So there's, there's no like, uh, there's so many different ways of doing it that I can't remember how each one's done. But I think I came in pretty late to that one. I guess everything's always a work in progress as well. Sometimes you don't even know what the thing you're playing is going to end up on much later down the line. Because for us yeah. as listeners, we think this created in order. Do you know what I mean? It's like, okay, we're working on On the Sunset. Everything that's created is for On the Sunset. But actually, your banking songs or your banking bits of playing, it's not quite right. It's not finished. We'll park that for something yeah. way later in the distance. Yeah. Yeah. Some some songs that are on, on an album could be like two years old. They could be a song that didn't quite work on the album before. Because you could really, you could put a double album out of like twenty songs, but they they might not be a thread between them all. They might not all work with each other. So you you just pick ten or twelve or whatever that that work together, and then if the ones that didn't make it work on the next album, then then yeah, could be stuff kicking around for years that just doesn't have a home because it doesn't quite yeah. fit somewhere, right? Yeah, that's a really good song, but you just you don't want to release it on its own because you don't want it to just sort of get wasted or like or or not get the attention that it should because it's so good yeah you just got to sort of match them all up i guess with the albums but paul's good at all that are there songs from the catalog that you've played on on albums or singles that you're really proud of your involvement from a recording point of view he talks about live gigs and the songs you like but yeah but i'm trying to remember it <laughs> brand new toy was a favorite that because that was different and um me and paul both had the, the exact same idea at the same time that was a that was a moment and um i do like that backwardsy drum beat thing I think the lovely little touches you add on Old Castles is a really nice one for me. Yeah. True Meanings is a really special album, I think. And I mean, amongst so many special albums, right? Yeah, that and um, what's the other one you're on on that album? Uh, what would he say? Oh, yeah, that's good, isn't it? What is it? That's like brushes, a bit sort of jazzy brushes, that one. I listened to Hopper the other day. I really like the drums on that one. Slightly different. As a drummer, we talked about those inspirations earlier on. Are you practicing regularly in terms of your craft? Are you trying? I mean, this sounds daft, I know, but no, <laughs> I've done all that. I've done all that <laughs> in the twenties. The terminology. I mean, how geeky a drummer are you in terms of all that Not stuff? Not at all. I like to know if if I need to do it, I'll figure it out. But I'm not, I'm not into all this showing off and playing really fast and making your drum kit go upside down and having a million, a million cymbals and all that sort of stuff. If that, uh, yeah, that bores me. I'm a bit more like musical approach. And kind of like a, or more like an organic type of uh, approach to your playing as well, right? You're not yeah, studying yeah. this as a craft in that, that way. No, I, I did when I was in my teens and getting into it and I was trying all different cymbals out and two bass drum pedals, all that sort of stuff. But, um, but yeah, it all, it all settled down. I, I'm more of like you do play the song. There's you don't need to feature in somebody on drums. It's like make the song the best that it could be. Take me behind the kit, right? So you're on stage. You got all your stuff in front of you. You have a yeah. lot of stuff there in front yeah. of you. Yeah. Right? So what's there? Talk me through it. And what does it do? Uh, I've got one symbol. I got the high out symbols as well. But um, yeah, just a really small drum kit. So just one of everything that I that I need. So. Like one rack tom, floor tom, snare kick, hats and a cymbal. So that you could, that's all a drummer needs, really. You don't need like eight toms and ten cymbals and two bass drums or all you need is, is 
one of each. Um, but then, yeah, I've got the, the bongos for um, on my left and uh, two tambourines in case I drop one. Oh, we've got a spare, <laughs> one for each hand. Um, but I've got these maracas that um, my friend went to design drums for a company called Natal. They've been making percussion for years, but they just started doing drum kits. He said, oh, do you want to come and have a look at these kits? So me and uh, the old Moons bass player, Tom, who's in Temples now, we went up in his, uh, he had a Beetle Volkswagen. So we've gone up there. My mate's like, do you want one? I'm like, yeah. So we've crammed this drum kit into the, be- into the Beetle. And uh, yeah, so they've really looked after me. So they sort me out with all the percussion and there's these maracas that I just can't find anymore and they don't make them anymore. What else have I got? It depends on the song. Like I used to have a chime bar, which I've, you know. I remember that. I remember seeing that, yeah. I used to have that, but if I don't need it, I'm not going to take it with me because it's just too much stuff already. And I don't, I'm, I really like the simple setups. So I've only got exactly what I need. Yeah. And, and samplers and sample pads. So what's the sampler? I've seen mention of a Roland. It's just a box that you, so I'll, I'll, uh, either get the original sounds and I'll chop them up and edit them on my computer. So they, uh, so they fit into the song or I will replicate the sounds and then I will import them into this Roland box and and the the Roland's got nine things, nine little pads on it. So I've got two of them. So that's 18 pads plus I've got other pads plugged into it. So that's 22 pads all with different sounds on. So every, every, when you play the next song, you press, press next on the pad and it's got a whole different bank of samples. So one song will be all strings and then the next one will be like percussive sounds or, or it could be, it could be anything. There's some, some songs I've sampled Craddock's guitar and, and I play guitar notes or vocal effects. And I think that's my favorite, favorite part of the live, live show is, is doing all the samples. That's hard. There's a lot of concentration involved in that, isn't there? Of like knowing what you're pressing, but also what you're going on to next and where yeah. that is, the layout and all that is. It keeps you on your toes, that I guess. Yeah. I, sometimes I don't know how my brain knows what to do next, but. Well, no, my brain doesn't. It's more of a hand. My hands do. <laughs> Think about it too much, then you're going to make a mistake. So sometimes I have to just do the autopilot thing. I saw Hannah Peel a little while back at the King's Place with this incredible percussionist called Bei Bei Wang. But they're doing the water, the water Yeah, yeah, the water bowls. And yeah. I immediately thought of you, I was like, what Ben's lacking is these big water bowls on, on stage. And <laughs> I don't know if I get away with that. I feel like <laughs> Making music from bubbles and things. It was wicked. It's really some, cool. Uh, is it Bull Rush? And they've got like an old school bell ringing. And I think we did that a couple of times. And those me stood there on, on stage ringing an old school bell. And I felt like a right Wally. Imagine <laughs> <laughs> me with a bowl of water flashing around. I'd love to see that, man. <laughs> yeah, you know. As you look at the band, it's such a special setup. And Paul's always had these incredible musicians from right through from Bruce and Rick to the Star Council, the honorary councillors, everything in the solo career from, you know, from Yolanda to, I mean, Jacko, the fact that Jacko's back again now is, yeah. is lovely. But as you look over and around your bandmates, these are such a talented bunch of people that you're working with day in, day out. There'll be moments where you just start laughing, like at the end of a, one of Craddock's solos and you're just laughing, like, how, how did he do it? And like Jake, for example, turned up and he'd learnt 30 songs in like two or three days and he didn't have one sheet of paper. Like he had no notes at all, just a pair of headphones and his phone and a, and a little bass with like rubber strings on it. And, um, and yeah, like a pilgrim drum solo when he's allowed to do them. 
Uh, yeah, we don't have so many of those these days, do we? But I mentioned 2023. I should have also mentioned that you mixed and produced the new Cow album as well, which has the Weller connection with Mark being Paul's cousin and stuff. I love the fact that, like I say, these fingers in all the pies, not just playing on these things, but the production thing is still important to you. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm very uh, grateful to be able to. And I've never done an album before. It's always just been the odd song or like a two or three songs in in once in one go. But um, yeah, the full album that was good. What different discipline does that bring, or do you need for that? Uh, what different input do you need from that? From being a a collaborator, I guess, and somebody who's you know creating music with Paul or following Paul's direction, like you say, versus I guess you're almost kind of like the um, like the ringmaster pulling it all together as a producer, aren't you? Yeah, but then. Well, I was doing it from home. They live down south somewhere. I'm not sure where they live, not far from the barn, maybe. Yeah, Cam- but, um, Camberley, I think, yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of to-ing and fro-ing, and I'll, I'll think something's really good, and I'll send it to them, and they're like, no, nah, that's not, like, can you can you get rid of that? Or and there's a lot of miscommunication when, when you're not all in the same room together. And I can, like, do something that I feel is really good, and I'll get precious about it, so... That doesn't always work if because they might they might not have the same idea as you. Um, so you you do have to like figure out the the their way of working and um, just make it best for for the artist. But um, it was really nice getting stuck into a full album, mm. and I got to play drums on it as well and bass on a couple of songs, which was nice. The others in the band, so. Tom has been creating his own music. Andy Crofts yeah. creating his own music and solo stuff now as well. Who else am I missing? Craddock has had a few albums out solo now. You see Pilgrim and that wonderful, I mean, such a wonderful set of albums from him. And the yeah. last one was an absolute stunner. Is there anything like that in your repertoire? What's the singing voice like, Ben? Oh, it's amazing. I won't, uh, I won't sing for you now. I don't want to. Uh, no, I cannot sing at all. I hate singing and I hate dancing. I'm, I'm Really do not like dancing. I don't. I can do some BBs if like live, but uh, it's like a running joke now. When when Paul's doing a vocal take, and if there's something that's like I don't know something where he needs to sort of listen back and figure it out, and I'll be like, "Well, I'll go and do it if you want. Like, let me have a go." And yeah, I might get swear. Uh, <laughs> I'm not somebody. So like Craddock. Jake's allowed, Tom's allowed, but you're not allowed, no? No, but we, he did give me a microphone years ago for maybe like the Saturn's Pattern tours. And I used to do some BVs, which was okay, and I got away with it. But he asked me to introduce a song in wherever he, like Amsterdam or somewhere, and I tried to speak Dutch and just totally messed it up. And every the whole crowd was staring at me with blank faces, and then he took my microphone away. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched those moments because he's done that more recently. And you go every time, every member of the band looks like they absolutely hate that moment. From even from Craddock, who's been with Paul for like thirty years now, <laughs> and <Yeah>. it's like. <laughs> It's, it's usually like you're put, you're put on the spot because you don't know it's going to happen. And if Paul wants a drink or if he wants to like go and do something, he might do that. Or if he needs to tune up or something, he'll make us do it. And he, like, he, on the last tour, he made me do it twice. I like to get off of my kit and walk around to the front of the stage, speak GCSE German. Yes, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of like being put on the spot. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, look, Ben, um, I look forward to whatever comes next, both from you playing with the Paul Weller band, the tours that will undoubtedly happen in 2024, the live dates and stuff will be really, really special. So you'll know before me. <laughs> well, you know, I won't get the 2 a.m. text about it. <laughs> Two final questions before you go, Ben. Oh, yeah. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Star Council or Solo. What are you going to go with? 
Um, gravity. Why is that not in the set list? That's why I cannot get my head around. Uh, it was. It's. It's done. It. It's had its time. I think we. It will come back. I'm sure. But um, imagine doing like full band and then down to Paul on his own with a guitar and no strings either. Like you need the strings on that song. Yeah. But you yeah. don't need them. He can do it on his own. But you um, can bloody sample them, Ben. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll do it now. <laughs> Why that one? That means something special to you, or just love that song? Um, just love the song and and the lyrics and um, being there at the time and when he was recording it and just yeah, that's that's the one. Oh, there's loads, isn't there? There's like Long Long Road or I really like um, Very Deep Sea. That's that's in my top five. Right. Final question. So the purpose of this podcast, Ben, is for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. It's my one big regret from giving up my life as a radio presenter. Why did it never happen? Who else did you interview? Um, who else did I interview? David Gray? Yeah. It was. <laughs> what was it? What was his song? He did, um, shall I go, uh, was it uh, Babylon? Oh yeah, that's it. Yeah, or, or sail away. He was guy like David. Anyway, um, yeah, there were a bunch. Of, it was it was. I worked for mostly for the BBC, and it was who had been what we now call heritage acts, right? So yeah. been the older school, but for whatever reason, never got the interview with Paul Weller. If it happens, Ben, if at the end of this podcast series I get the interview with Mr. Weller, what should I ask him? You could ask him some tea-related questions, like the process. He'd, he'd be up for a chat about how to make <laughs> the perfect tea. Definitely. Um, like curry related. Curry what's, your, related. what's your curry of choice then? Uh, the curry god. I haven't got a favourite, but it's usually like a madras or something like that. Something a okay. bit, bit spicy. I like my lentils and my spinach. Yeah. <laughs> Eating in or taking out? What do you prefer? Both. All of it. All the curry, please. All right. So tea chat, curry chat, tea, curry. What else? Yeah, not like technical equipment questions. I don't think they'd be. <laughs> too fussed about that. But early quo, bit of the bit of the quo, loads of Beatles stuff. If you get the interview with him, you can talk about Beatles for the whole thing and it'd be fine. Clothes and haircuts and shoes and black socks. He likes black socks. <laughs> Makes it easier, didn't it? If she's just said black socks every day. Yeah. Ben, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much Thanks for your time, for man. Me. Thank you, mate. I'll see you next time. My thanks once again to Ben Gordelia for joining me on the podcast. You can find out more. Just head to the show notes for this episode. Got loads of information on there. A little playlist of tracks featuring Ben as well. Videos, music, and more. PaulWellerFanPodcast.com. Now, whilst you're on the website, if you fancy it, you can head into my store, get yourself some official podcast merchandise. And if you fancy it, you can sign up and buy a virtual coffee for me as well. Thanks to Giorgio Moroso, who's done exactly that over the past week. Hello to Grant. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Steve Perry, thank you. Hello to Rob, a.k.a. Plod the Mod, who says, Great podcast, as always, mate. Keep up the good work. Hello to Duncan, thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hi, Ian. Hello, Sean Wilson and Rich Gill. Thanks very much, mate. Hi to Nick Butler, who says, I listen to the podcast every day on my drive to work. The Weller Fellas story is still turning me on to new music after all these years. A beautiful musical journey. Thank you, Paul, for the education. Thank you, Dan, for the brilliant podcast. Bless you, Nick. Much appreciated. If you want to get involved, paulwellerfanpodcast.com online. You can get in touch on X. Just search for at wellerfanpod or on Instagram, Facebook and threads. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.